From double consciousness to the queens of neo soul healing us all. This is Rooted Black Rose at Fun FNN. We're representing everyday Black millennial women of multiple faiths, cultures, and double consciousness styles. Absolutely. Yeah, this week was a very tough one for us. Earlier in the week, the unarmed shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery in Brunswick, Georgia was released. Weirdly enough, the video actually, or the death and murder of Ahmad happened February 23rd, and um, multiple prosecutors in that city recused themselves, saying that they didn't feel comfortable prosecuting the men who murdered Ahmad. Um, and it wasn't really until the video came out that people really pushed that, that the city and the prosecutors of that city to but charge uh, the people who killed him, uh, the father-son duo, and then also a videotaper. And it was a hard pill to swallow. I saw, you know, Twitter always gets everything first. Um, and I saw the video and I was like, I can't take it. I can't watch this. Just another one, you know? And yeah. I do think that likely unarmed uh, shooting deaths of Black men have probably still gone on since kind of the 2016 shooting deaths of Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown. It's just so many to name. And I'm, you know, I'm likely not naming all of them, of course. Right. Um, but these deaths, when they happen to our community, I think there's a collective trauma that occur. And it really makes us live kind of this double consciousness here in the United States. There's a racial contract that we all abide by and kind of sign with invisible ink in this country. Um, the Decla Declaration of Independence says that all men are created equal, but this racial contract tells you to shut up and right. be part. So you make people feel comfortable. Um, how, how did you feel, Fnad, when this video came out? Man, I felt so heavy. And it was one of those things, I don't know about you, but for me personally, I, I, I know it's not good for me to watch those videos because it, it plays in my mind over and over mm -hmm. and over again when I'm trying to sleep, when I'm trying to focus, like it's just etched into my brain and it makes me upset every time I rethink about it. Um, and so I knew I shouldn't have watched it, but I watched it anyway. Yeah. Um, and I instantly regretted it. Um, and so for me, it's difficult when it's all on my timeline and then my friends start reposting and everything else. Um, but it feels almost like when you step outside of your immediate friends, it's like nothing ever happened almost. Mm -hmm. And that's the part I struggle with the most. It's like, it's so devastating to me. It's so devastating to so many of my friends and family who look like they could have been, it could have been any of us. Mm -hmm. And there's certain groups of folks who it, it's not even a blip on the radar. And that's what's so tragic. Isn't what it? About you? Yeah, it was a tough pill to swallow. Um, I remember I did watch some of the video and at some point I had to turn it off because it seemed like, who was your, the big horror person back in the day, like Candyman to me or, or Bloody Mary, you know? And it was just like, I had to run out. Like you used to as a kid run out of the bathroom yeah. before you said it the third time, right? It really felt like a horror movie. It was like, not again. And I do think as black women, we kind of fit into the contract a little more easily. We're more digestible in a way, although our lives are at risk, but not as much as black men in this country. And to have two brothers of, of large stature, you know, one being six seven, the other one six five, 
and I, my brother came here last week and he drove my little sister up and then drove back down to Jacksonville, Florida. And he's driving down what we call, you know, the, the Mason Dixon line yeah. right, right through there. And it, it's, I had to tell him, Hey, don't speed. You're by yourself. Try to avoid, you know, speed traps. You don't want to get pulled over driving by yourself as a black man down back from Atlanta to, to Jacksonville. And so it's a very real thing in this country um, and there's a real fear. And if we don't abide to this invisible contract and make our oppressors feel comfortable at all times, then you know there are consequences, unfortunately. I uh, live outside of a, a popular walking area here in Atlanta and this area hasn't been completely paved yet and the neighborhood is transitioning weirdly enough, right? And just like in Insecure, where they started seeing people like jog and walk, you know, walk their dogs. Walk dogs like, yeah. people, are, people are moving in, you know, the, the folks are moving in. And it's like, we're signing this invisible contract yet again of like the things that I have to do to make you feel comfortable, to unarm you on a daily basis, to disarm you. And um, often, you know, on Twitter, they actually said, uh, a, a gentleman wrote, hey, I often wear my Ivy League college attire when I walk or jog on paths so that I'm not at risk or people kind of are disarmed by my presence as a black man. It's like, oh, he's an educated Negro. Okay, we can give him a pass, right? And I was like, wow, I actually unconsciously do that too. If I'm walking on the path, I always make sure to wear like Gator gear or UC Berkeley gear to just, you know, so people don't have to clutch their proverbial purse, you know, um, or clutch that gun, who knows? Yeah, and I, I feel the same sentiments, you know, you talked about something that I think is really powerful about, you know, this unspoken responsibility put on black folks, um, and even so Muslim folks, um, to disarm people. So for example, I didn't have a mask for the first couple of weeks, because I just, it was so hard to find one. Mm -hmm. And I literally resulted in like taking my scarf and like putting it over my face. And you cannot imagine, well, I'm sure you can, <laughs> the yeah. looks I was getting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there was, there was a lot of commentary on Instagram and Twitter about if you're black, you can't wear a face mask into stores. Yeah. And it's just, it's the most ridiculous thing. Um, but it's sad that you're a hundred percent right. That if we don't play ball, oftentimes we're taking a gamble with our lives, yeah. uh, with a requirement, for example, in this case with COVID that is usually state mandated, wear a mask outside, but the, the freedoms are not given equally both ways. You know, if you're white, it's one thing. And if you're black, it's another thing. And even if you're a hijabi or a Muslim, then it's a totally ever, there's different rules, you know? So that really resonated with me with what you said. The other question that I really wanted to ask you, Farah, was how do you, or do you actually, in fact, research these incidents? For me personally, when I learn about one of these incidents, I'm really careful not to just jump and repost. I found that in the past that it could be really detrimental um, if we're jumping on those situations without knowing the facts. And I can't help but think about the Jesse Smollett incident where there was so much outrage. And literally, I remember you know, people who are not of color saying, see, you guys are always quick to assume. And it almost kind of takes back our credibility. And Everybody who defended him um, was called into question, which is really, really sad. And so 
for me personally, I like to do my own research um, as much as I can on the incident. Um, but it could be so triggering doing that when you're pulling back the layers and finding out just how gruesome this really was, or if it was premeditated and the amount of hate is sometimes so hard to watch. But I feel like I don't have a choice because if I don't research it, then I'm leaving myself vulnerable to not knowing the true story and not being able to, you know, actually impact change or support him by calling the necessary state officials, for example. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's so hard to consume the details and the nitty gritty of the situation. So I just was curious to see, you know, for you, do you like to research the incident? How do you research the incident? I just was hoping you could share. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point about, you know, when we do our due diligence to figure out what exactly happened, um, we put ourselves at risk for trauma of the incidents. Um, and that that's exactly the case. We do put ourselves at risk, but we need to do it, right? Um, I think, interestingly, we had a clear-cut video of what, the, what happened, even though the prosecutor saw it from day one and felt like it was a justifiable homicide. Um, I think the public did a great job of researching exactly what was going on by watching the entire video and, of course, kind of um, requiring and asking people to follow behind the cause and call, and call the uh, state legislators or the city legislators of Brunswick, Georgia. Um, for me, I do, you know, the video I watched to the point where I was like, okay, this is clear what happened. Um, Then I, of course, read articles and think pieces about what's going on and, you know, the the ramifications of what this all means. And we all know it's like another unarmed black man has died. Um, But I think we have social media, interestingly, social media activism works. You know, a lot of people are like, hey, you're over there behind your computer. And it's like, no, actually this works, but it's so reactionary, interestingly. And I just wonder what can we do um, in our research to like prevent these things from happening? I think often it's, I was looking back at my Instagram feed um, from a few years back. Cause I was like, I feel like I posted something about this. And back in 2015, 2016, I posted something about like uh, someone gets killed. We march, we protest, we forgive, repeat, you know? And it's this cycle of, of these things happen, we get some modicum of, of justice, um, we kind of quiet down, we get to forget, it's like summer 2016 was the best summer ever, you know? <laughs> and then we are reminded yet again of where, where we are in the, this contract that we've, this invisible contract that we've signed. It's like, hey, this is notarized, sealed, and delivered. And it's quite unfortunate, but I do think that we need to do our research regarding what goes on. I, journalism in this country is interesting, and I'm not going to say fake news because I don't like to take on the language of oppressors, um, but I do believe that we have to do our own research. I think in this country, there is precedence um, regarding the poor uh, detailing of what happens with people of color. You know, we're called, you think about Trayvon Martin and during his death, he was said that he was a thug. He was mixing his Arizona juice and Skittles to create kind of a a lean of sort or like a a drink um, that could get him intoxicated. And it's like, how dare you do that? You know, and I just don't trust the news to report the uh, killing of unarmed people um, with with justice, with the lens of justice. They have kind of rose-colored glasses when it comes to the death of Black people. They're comfortable with it. 
Um, I think they've made us inanimate objects so that they don't have to have compassion regarding our deaths. And so I don't look, look to them for, to, to get and gain an adequate understanding of what's going on. So I do do my own research. Um, yeah. It makes me hot though. I'll tell you that. Uh, it makes me so hot. One day I was reading and if you go to my Twitter, I was, it was like nonstop of like, and that's where I kind of release my anger is on Twitter. I don't like to do it with friends or family. I think that it just adds and picks at the wound of how our lives are fleeting. So I don't like to talk to the people I love and care about. So Twitter is a place where it's like a sounding board, a soapbox of like, oh, I just need to let it all out. So I do do research and then kind of let it out on that platform. It's interesting that you say that. I have a group chat with people that I've, you know, um, met from work or what have you. Um, and because we actually know each other from diversity and inclusion events at work, we have like a shared understanding. And so whether it's in the black community or whether it's um, COVID or whatever the case may be, when there's things that affect us, we tend to drop it in there. One of us is going to drop it in there like, hey, have you seen this? Mm -hmm. And we have a conversation about it. And it's a safe space that I'm really, really grateful for for us to just kind of talk like talk our shit really just be like whatever you know if we're upset if we're frustrated if we disagree with the response um but I realized a lot of my healing has happened in those circles where where we all feel comfortable being able to share and I never would have thought that would have been with work colleagues because for a long time that was like a big no-no right um and so uh for me for our adulting segment today what I wanted to kind of talk about is you know outside of these space safe spaces like for some they're not comfortable talking with the network like I didn't have that until very recently when I made it a point to say you know I, I want to impact change, but I'm just a person and I'm not a politician. I've kind of said those things to myself, mm -hmm. uh, but at work, we have the opportunity, you know, no matter where you work, if you work for a corporation like I do to em empower change from the inside out. Right. Um, and so I've become more involved in these initiatives. Um, but sometimes I feel find myself with that double identity, right? Where with this coworker, I'll talk about it with this. I don't. And there always needs to be some sort of discretion. Um, but I was curious for your perspective, you know, are there people you just will not talk to this about this stuff with? I don't do that at work. I think I'm fortunate enough to work with liberals in a sense, being in the healthcare space. White liberals often kind of play that, that, that game of, I only do it when it's comfortable for me. I only participate in white allyship when it doesn't require an action for me. And I think allyship is action oriented. I don't ask people at work to support it. I don't even talk to them about it. I, they often say like, who are you outside of work? And I'm like, we're going to create that that space there just because I don't trust you. I don't, and it's not that, um, like, I do care about these people at work, but it's just like, we don't need to have that relationship. I don't, uh, and maybe that's wrong of me not to have, have a sense of dependency to their allyship. It's like, you better show up, you know? And I, I don't have actually a lot of white friends outside of work. Um, and I think in undergrad, I realized, I'm like, oh, I don't have to be your friends and deal with this all the time. <laughs> of holding my tongue and being like, did that really just come out of your mouth? And I think because of that Kanye twitch, it's like, I can't keep my mouth closed when I see it. So what I'm going to do is keep myself away from you. Um, so I don't have to make these Bush doesn't like black people comments, because I will, you know? 
Yeah. And I can't afford that with work. They literally employ me. So to make statements like that would really put myself at risk. And I think that even that conversation brings up an interesting point of the way that we become better from this moment is to put our lives on the line. And I don't know how we do that. Um, being that we're such a slave to you know, our incomes and our jobs and maintaining um, our mortgages and our car payments, right? Um, so it's, it's interesting. I don't, I don't require it. Um, there's actually a, a, it's kind of like a Instagram friend. His name is Maddie D31. And he posted like a whole lengthy uh, post or story about white allyship and what it means. It's like, it's an active relationship. You got to show up. And I'll say this one last thing. Um, my favorite book is the autobiography of Malcolm X. And in that book, and I think I've stated this here um, on Rude Black Girls, um, but in the book, he, there's a white woman who comes up to him and says, hey, I wanna work on the cause, I'm fired up, I'm excited. And he literally told that girl to like bounce, like I don't need you, you know? And I think this is when he was on his like- White, white devil. devil. Yes, <laughs> Fred loves that book. Exactly. And then towards the end of it, he said the only regret that he had in his entire life, zoot suit, everything, you know, his under, you know, understanding of his life is like, I should have told her to go back to her communities and tell them about what was going on in our communities and really kind of raise the bar of your participation in social justice in this country. Yeah. And I think that's more than anything. When I, if, if white folks are watching this, all I ask is go back to your community, literally go and talk to your mom and dad at the dinner table because they likely voted for Donald J. Trump. You know what I mean? Like, go to work and talk about these issues. Um, and that's, that's what I would require from, from white people in this country, because it is a melting pot of a country, and we do have to work together to get the job done. Um, but we don't need to do it in each other's communities. It's like, go, go to your community and talk about this. Yeah, I agree with you through and through. I think the one thing that I have really taken away from these situations is that if anything, I advocate very, very strongly for the ability for us to speak our truths because for a long time, even to what you're saying, it was dangerous and it still is to go to work and be your full self, mm -hmm. right? It, it's, it, it could almost be seen as like insubordination, for example, to be affected by a death in your own community right and not put on this mask like that contract that you're kind of talking about and that's that's bullshit right quite mm -hmm. frankly it is. so i think what i try to do is you know when i when i'm talking about like at work when we're talking about that dni and diversity and inclusion um more so than anything i'm working really hard to make space for our communities to be them their full selves mm -hmm. even if that's we want funding for us to be able to have a meeting space once a month for us to talk about these things, mm -hmm. right? Or we want um, we want uh, support from HR that we amongst ourselves are going to come together and we're going to donate to this cause from our own pockets, right? But as a group because we have this collective interest, right? Um, and it's so it's so interesting that so many companies don't have those spaces um, because those separations have been so prominent that you are this person that's genderless, um, raceless. When you're at work, you're just here to fit a job. And that just, that does not, yeah. um, that's not fair because it doesn't exist for other majorities, right? It only seems to apply to minorities because we're talking about um, Christian holidays and we're talking about um, 
any type of socialism that applies to white people, then it's fine. You bring up an excellent point in that it is, I've, I've had coworkers kind of look at me like, oh, you're kind of duplicitous in a way, right? But it's like, I don't have the freedom to show up as my full self here. It's not happening, you know? And so, yes, I'm this way at work, but then outside of work, I have a podcast and a clothing line and this and this, and I enjoy this, uh, but I can't show up. Like, look at it as a privilege that you come into this job on a daily basis and you can be yourself inside of work and outside of work. So if then, with everything that went on last week, um, last night, we all had the pleasure, because we taped this on Sunday, so Saturday night, we all had the pleasure of watching Jill Scott and Erica Badu's live. And I felt like it was a collective community healing. And I was like, of course it would happen that coming together of Black women would allow for this healing space. And when I was kind of chatting with friends, everyone was like, I'm just so relaxed and this is amazing. And they were just- said earlier, your Gretchen shoulders came down. <laughs> my Gretchen shoulders just came down. My back like loosened up a little bit. And it was a very positive space. It was two black women who really rode for each other. Um, they actually did the battle better than any of the guys, you know, and it was just a great space. I thought, and I posted this on my uh, Instagram story that I felt like it was an Ayanla bosom moment. <laughs> like everyone was able to heal on Ayanla's bosom. That's what, that's what that entire IG live was like. And I was grateful for the experience. I feel like it was a community healing space. And of course it would be black women who would do that. Of course. Always. Isn't it always us? Oh. <laughs> yeah. So then for you, like, how do you feel like you may be moving into the next week or a few weeks? Like, how do we heal from this? Because I think, yes, there's a way, there's a way to move forward in a justice capacity, but then there's also that personal healing capacity that we have to deal with too. Like in the personal aspect, how will you move forward? How will you heal yourself? Yeah. I think for me, when I see our community come together in remembrance, that's really like the moment where, you know, for me, he's not forgotten. And I really loved seeing the post. I didn't see it until too late in the day for me to participate, but um, I run with Ahmad. I love that. I loved seeing my family and my friends from all over the world, you know, showing their Fitbits and their Apple watches and their GPSs of, you know, where they ran, you know, in solidarity and how we were all marching, even in, a COVID environment, yeah. um, if you will. And that was really, really touching for me. Um, and at the end of the day, I always have to just pray on it and I have to just leave it to God. And, um, and at the end of the day, he's, he's all knowing and all wise. And I feel that true healing only happens through understanding he has a greater plan, even if we don't understand it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that change is happening. It is slow as hell, to be honest, but it's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and with each one of these incidents, our young uh, adults, right? Like our nephews, our nieces, our cousins who are younger, um, they're slowly going to be the difference, right? And I, I get excited when I see people who, who post, you know, my son saw this and said, he's gonna be a prosecutor to make sure this never happens again. My daughter said she's gonna be a judge to make sure that we actually get convictions, right? Um, and, and that's really the, the silver lining in a really sad, honest moment. Like there's no fixing it. We won't get him back mm -hmm. and there's nothing that can be done for the families who lost someone, but it's, it's, it's a little bit to kind of keep me moving, um, so that I'm not, you know, just heartbroken, you know? So I did want to add this, um, before we wrap up here, Erica Badu or Jill Scott asked Erica Badu, like, how are you doing in this moment? 
and Erica Badu kind of deflected the conversation. She, I, I found that Erica lives in like a positive space and she literally has a force field around her around like negative shit. She's like, I'm not gonna take on, take this on. And I've been on my like affirmation, kind of sitting on my yoga mat. Yes! <laughs> Rilling, you know, in the affirmative lately. And like, I, I am, I have, and I think, we also have to do that too. It's, it's like, I love to read about like historical context. I'm actually reading a book now and I'm like, I might need to put this down because it's just too heavy right now. It's, um, what's that? Book? Oh, there, The Color of Law, The Color of Law. And it talks about like how neighborhoods were segregated by the federal government and it's heavy. And it's like, ooh, these things happen, but how do we kind of collectively affirm ourselves to a positive future? And it's very hippy dippy, but I think there is a lot to be said around like, having a force field and thinking positively and affirming the life we want to live as a collective of black people. Um, so I took that from Erica because Erica Badu magically honored her sister in the question and didn't say, I don't do that. But, and then also said, Hey, you know, I do feel that way, but I always think about the positive. And I think it's, we take on a mod's untimely uh, on, on death um, and we honor him. We pray but I think we have to think about how do we envision our, our future moving forward? And, you know, of course we have the privilege of doing that because we're not his family. Um, but it's also kind of like the collective family of like, how do we not make his death in vain and how do we push for a brighter future? Absolutely. I love that. I couldn't close out the episode any better. So with that, I think we'll stop here. <laughs> if you guys are enjoying this content, please make sure if you guys are on Spotify or Apple Podcasts that you rate and review. And if you guys are watching this on YouTube, make sure that you subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment down below. But until next time, peace. Bye y'all.